This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we're talking about films again, like we do. Um, Danielle, how's it going for you? Um, I'm irritated this week. Mm, Explain, explain. I feel like I'm trying to figure out why this is. I notice there is something that happens to me frequently now that did not used to happen to me. And... So I'm forced to wonder, is it because of my age? Is it because of, like, where I live or, like, how I interact with people? People talk to me like I'm a fucking idiot. What? Constantly. Constantly. Like, okay, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's talk about this. Because I know that in the past, you have said on the podcast and to me as your friend that like you would have like these contractors that would come into your house who would frequently speak to you as if you're like a idiot little girl. Okay. And I just assumed that was because I don't know the inherent misogyny and like, I don't know the construction world where they think that women just don't know anything about like tools and building things. But so now you're saying that it's just happening like all the time in your world. All the time. And it's it's both online and in person. And it's to the point where, again, like I am forced to consider, is this, you know, I always go internal first. So I'm like, is this me? Is this the way that I'm either interpreting something or is it the way that I'm communicating something to people? Mm. But it happens enough that I'm like bothered by it. I think in, that I'm an unreasonably intelligent person. And what I mean by that is... I know a lot about things I have no business knowing about because they don't affect my day-to-day existence. They don't affect my job. I'm a genuinely curious person, so I Mm -hmm. know a lot about a lot of things. And I'm an autodidact and a polymath, which means that I am largely self-taught about these things. And I have a wide range of knowledge. Does that mean I never fuck up? Of course not. Does that mean I don't make mistakes and mispronounce things? Of course not. Does that mean that I don't want to learn? Of course not. It's the exact opposite. What I, what I guess the cornerstone of me being a smart person in the world has never been based on showing it off, which is why I also left my PhD program. Because, yeah, I'm smart enough that I also started a PhD program. <laughs> but I left it because I looked around and I thought, I'm going to be talking to the same seven people for the rest of my life and trying mm. to impress them with things that don't matter, essentially. And I don't want to do that. I don't think education should be siloed. I don't think intelligence is something that should be siloed. I think it should be shared. I think that, for again, for me, the basis of my intelligence as a person is that I like to listen and I like to learn. You know, I, I took apart my vacuum the other day and 
I had to fix, you know, clean out the lint roller, but then I just got kind of curious about how it works. So I took apart my fucking Dyson and put it back together again. I watched a couple of videos because I just wanted to know, do you want me to give you the history of my fucking vacuum every time I talk about it? Because I can, but it would be incredibly fucking boring and condescending. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I just, I think that my approach to intelligence is not the same as other people. I don't feel like you have to show it off. I don't think it's a true way to communicate if you're just constantly telling people they're wrong. Um, It doesn't make you seem smart. It makes you seem like a fucking dick. And I never wanted to be that person in the world. And I don't want to be that person in the world. I like learning. You know, I read 600-page books about economics for fun. (laughs) Like, I just enjoy knowing about things. The expression of that for me is not, I now have to make sure everyone knows that I know about those things. Well, and like, listen, here's a reality that I think a lot of people who are very quick to jump into comments and correct people and school people on things don't realize, which is that, you know, as a woman of color, you have to be working twice as hard to prove how smart you are and who you are like every day and you've done it your entire life. And, you know, it's like, I think that there's a double standard, obviously, when it comes to women who are presenting knowledge because, um, you know, they're, they've never gotten the chance to own the things that they know. I go through it too. And it's, it's not easy ever to be forward facing and presenting knowledge as a woman. Yeah. Okay. Give us the benefit of the doubt. The B of the, the D. Of the D. Yep. And the reason I also mentioned this is because it does play into a, a, scene, a couple of scenes in your movie this week, which also was interesting to me. <laughs> but it also happens in my real life. So I had, you know, last year when the contractors were here also talking to me like I'm an idiot who doesn't know anything. Yeah. Um, they installed some LED lights like in the hallway and in one of the bathrooms. And one of the lights went out this week, this week. So I had to change the bulb, but I've never changed an LED bulb before. So, of course, I watched two videos <laughs> and I was like, got it. No problem. Took the bulb, you know, turn the, you have to turn the power off, guys. Turn the power off in the room that you're in. Um, so I turned the power off, took the bulb out and then, you know, turned the power back or went to the hardware store before I turned the power back on and like replaced it. So I went to the hardware store and I had the bulb with me, but I left it in my car. But because I had watched all these videos, these videos about it, I knew exactly what I fucking needed. I looked at the bulb itself, so I knew what the model number was, I knew what the size was, I knew what the wattage was, I knew everything about this fucking light bulb. And I go to my hardware store, and not the clotter ring guy, another guy, (laughs) saw me in the aisle (laughs) while I was looking for the bulb, not even knowing if they had it there. But I thought, you know, I always go to my local hardware store first for anything, So I'm standing there just kind of searching for exactly what I need. And he comes over very friendly and you're like, do you need any help? And I said, no, it's okay. I'm just looking for this LED bulb. And he starts talking to me. Like I said to him, I'm just standing here trying to understand quantum physics. And I feel like you're a quantum physicist and you can tell me about it. So he starts popping off about LED bulbs. And I said, oh, that's cool. Like, I just, I know what I need. I need this thing. Like, maybe you can just point me to it. And he's like... Well, I could, but are you sure about this? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. Are you sure about that? Yeah. Did you turn the power? Yeah, I turned the power off. Are you sure you don't want to get an electrician? To change a fucking light bulb? I'm pretty sure I don't. I'm pretty sure I don't. Do you know about the springs inside? I'm like, yeah, obviously, because I took the bulb out. 
So I know about the springs inside. I'm not kidding you when I said when I'm telling you this man for four solid minutes didn't do customer service, didn't answer my question about where I could find what I needed, and just talked down to me like I'm someone who doesn't understand how to change a fucking light bulb. Yeah. So finally, at one point, I looked at him and I said, I have the bulb I need in my car, if that will help you understand that I know what I'm doing. Yeah. But if you don't point to the exact bulb I need right now, I'm just going to have to ask you to walk away so I can get what I need and leave. Yeah. Hey. And he kind of looked at me and I was like, what do you want from me? This is not the fucking hardware store story hour where you just get to tell me everything you know about this, whatever you fucking know about <laughs> and talk to me like, I don't know what I need. Yeah. I mean, look, I have been there in the <laughs> hardware store where, and part of me is like, am I the only customer you've had all day? So now you're like, oh my God, I get to talk to somebody really right. intricately about light bulbs. And so <laughs> whether or not this person wants the knowledge or not, I'm going to have to do it. Like I can't help myself. But yeah, there are there are times where that's happened to me and I've truly been like, okay, thanks. Okay, thanks. Bye. Mm -hmm. Like I don't, I cut them off at the hilt because I'm just like, this isn't really doing anything for me. And right. I feel like I'm becoming this unwilling participant in this bullshit that you need to do. And I don't want to do that anymore. So I'm fucking walking away. And then when you go <laughs> off and help somebody else, I'm going to come back around to the aisle and get the shit that I need and then leave. You know? Thank you. And so, then also that you think you can waste my time, spend my time telling me what you know. So you've held me captive in an audience to you showcasing your intelligence, even though I don't want to fucking hear it. Yeah. <laughs> like I didn't ask for it and I don't want to hear it. So now you're like holding me hostage. Yeah. Because you think I need to hear it because what? I'm a woman? Yeah. Because I'm like, what? what is it about me that translates to you when I'm literally saying out of my mouth, I know exactly what I need. I don't get it. And here's the thing. If I buy the wrong bulb, I'll fucking come back. If I do fuck up, I'm not just going to jam the wrong light bulb in my fucking ceiling and watch my house burn down. Like, yeah. I'll come back. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying I never mess up. I'm just saying, why don't people believe what I'm saying when the words are coming out of my fucking mouth? <laughs> like, it's why is it so hard for you to believe that I know what I want? It's a fucking tone, dude. Like, I can't, because sometimes when I do go into a place, sometimes that, like, really exhaustive, nerdy shit is cool. Like, there are times, like, when right. I go to into, like, a ranger station at a national park, and I'm like, tell me about this bird I just saw. And then, like, somebody goes, like, 15 minutes on it. I asked for that. I wanted that. That's cool. And, like, I'll sit there and listen to you. But don't come to me with the assumption that I'm an idiot and I don't know what I'm talking about. Like, Ask some exactly. exploratory questions. Listen to the responses. And if it sounds like I just need a little bit of help, then gauge that. Don't just immediately Completely. assume that I need, like, the fucking full Monty about everything. You know what I mean? Exactly. And again, be and I'm not the kind of person that won't ask, much like yourself. If I'm like, hey, tell me about that bird. If I want to know about it, I'll ask you. Like, yes. I know a lot of people won't, but I'm not that person. Right. Like, I will ask you. And I've done that several times in the hardware store where I'm like, I think what I need is this, like a one quarter inch sink bit so I can like put this handle in my kitchen drawer. But am I correct with this? Should I get something else? And then they'll tell me. Yes. <laughs> you know, like that's great because I fucking asked. Right. If I come in and say, I'm looking for a quarter inch drill bit, give me the fucking quarter inch drill bit and let me go on with my fucking life. Yeah. 
I mean, a lot of times, if 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 you just listen to somebody say, "I don't know what I'm doing here," then right. that is your <laughs> that is your cue to go the full nine on someone. But if it's somebody being like, "Okay, I know I have this. I know I have this. This is what I need." You don't need to get into the fucking history of light bulbs. It's totally fine, you know. It's just, and it happens to me so often that I truly. The reason I'm talking about it, and thank you for giving me space to talk about this and pop of course, off a little bit, of um, is because I'm sick of spending my therapy dollars trying to figure it out. <laughs> like, I go to therapy every week, and I'm like, what is, what am I doing that in the world, which to me doesn't feel like I've changed anything about myself or how I communicate. What am I communicating to people that makes them think I don't know anything? Not even that I don't know what I'm talking about in one specific moment. They talk to me like I don't know anything. <laughs> like, what is it? I'm not spending any more money on therapy trying to figure it out. Y'all got to yeah. fucking level up your tone. <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, I think I think when I've interrogated this kind of stuff in therapy, I have figured out it's like a two-prong thing. It's A, my sheer existence makes yep. it look like I don't know anything. Okay? But <laughs> yeah. also, the idea that I'm working so hard to like be a person in the world that knows things. Right. And sometimes I'm I'm very quick to get riled up about right. that kind of stuff. And I know it. And I've, at a certain point in my age, <laughs> I have decided I'm not going to fight today. Right. I'm just not. I'm going to let them do what they fucking are doing. And I'm just not going to get caught up in the bullshit. And I'm just going to be like, okay, cool. Yep, bye. And I don't mm -hmm. fight, and I just walk away. And that's just saving energy. But the instinct is always, like, go for the jug. Like, shut right. this person fucking down. <laughs> they have underestimated me, and they will never do that again if I'm involved. You know, like, exactly. I will, like, decimate a motherfucker. But I, I have to learn and have learned that I just can't, be at full tilt like that every day in my right. life. And that, like, you know, it's worth fighting for now in certain instances and other times it's not. And um, I have a better judgment about that now. But that, I learned that all in yeah. therapy. I didn't come up with that exactly. shit on my own. <laughs> exactly. So. I'm learning how to be soft in the world and I have to go out to the world and be like a hard bitch. I'm learning how to do that in therapy. Same. But yeah, I, I just appreciate you talking about this because I know you know what I'm talking about. And it's, of course. The, I think the fact that I experience it in my personal life so much now, it kind of exacerbates the instances when it happens online. Yeah. Like where, like previously I would have been like, I don't, I'm not reading this. I don't give a shit or whatever. Or, you know, I would say like, you know, great. Glad you feel that way and move on. Yeah. I think because it happens in my personal life now so much that I'm like, I don't want to read it either. I don't want to have this coming yeah. at me from all fucking angles. Yeah. Well, and I'm just telling you right now, it bothers me as your friend because I'm, my vibe is older sister who's, you know, going to basically yes. beat up anybody that's fucking with you. So, you <laughs> know. And you know, I appreciate it so much, truly. <laughs> Okay, so uh, this week, I don't know. Did, did some of you guess what the theme was going to be? I don't know. Probably. I uh, wanted to do this theme for a while. And then right as we were doing research for it, 
I realized that there's like an entire documentary series based on our theme. That's is out there, there really? There is actually. We'll talk about it in a second, but I <gasps> want to tell people right up front what the theme is. And I think the title is so perfectly Danielle that I want you to say it. This is a great tag team effort because Millie <laughs> wanted to cover <laughs> Millie wanted to cover cursed movies. And I said, well, then the theme should be Workman's Comp does not cover this. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That is uh, the best of what Daniel has to offer in terms of theme <laughs> names. There's been many instances of it, but this one is perfect, I would Absolutely. say. And it's it's something that I also feel like growing up, before pre-internet days, there were always these stories that came out eventually about movies or TV shows that you loved where like somebody died or got hurt. And it wasn't a TV series. It wasn't anything that was collected. It was just like more of a rumor mill. Yeah. And it made it more ominous for me as a kid. Yeah. Like, and here's here's what I'll say too about uh, the concept of a cursed movie. And this is, you know, obviously uh, is within like film culture. Like we've, uh, there's many, like I said, there's a whole series, documentary series that I think is on Shudder if you want to check it out. It's called Cursed Films. And they kind of go in one by one each film and kind of talk about the, you know, the sort of like legend of it and why it's cursed. And a lot of it is that, you know, there were things that were happening on the set. There were things that were happening to, you know, actors, directors, you know, like while they were filming the movie, uh, there were kind of like eerie coincidences of things happening. Uh, what I think is interesting though, is that like, I think all, if not one Although you could probably argue the one outlier is actually a horror movie, but everyone's everything's a horror movie. Like all all of these films are either dark subject material, horror, dark action in the case maybe of your film. That's mm-hmm. what I think is also interesting to point out is that yeah. You never hear about like a movie like Something's Got to Give being cursed. Nobody perished on the Care Bears movie set <laughs> to our knowledge. <laughs> Smurfs, 100% somebody died in the Smurfs movie, but not Care Bears. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the most famous ones in history is The Wizard of Oz. And, you know, that is obviously one of the films, I think, that that gets brought up in the miniseries. But I'm like, yo, there are horror elements to The Wizard of Oz. There's a witch. (laughs) There's flying monkeys. And we've talked about this. Like, a house drops on somebody. Like, (laughs) that's a horror movie in so many ways. Yeah, so it's like, I th- I feel like maybe, you know, the idea of a movie being cursed does c- happen with certain types of films. And, mm-hmm. you know, not a rom-com or something, you know? Although, if there was a cursed rom-com uh, out there, and I don't know about it, please email us at isawwhatyoudidpod at gmail.com. And be nice, okay? I, I, I don't know. I, I truly don't know. And I'm, I'm telling you that right now. So, but here's the thing I will say about this theme this week. And again, a Trojan horse to this shit. <laughs> I have never seen your movie before. <gasps> what? Yes. Yes. I've never okay. seen The Crow until that a couple days ago. That is shocking on so many levels, <laughs> primarily because... You have laid out in such detail what you were like as a teenager. 
mm-hmm. that I thought you would have been like midnight movie first showing for this one. I'm going to tell you right now, Danielle, I almost <laughs> called you because I was like, I can't put this over a text. I was like, I'm either going to have to send you a voice memo or I'm going to have to call you cold. But like the chief thought that I had when I watched your movie this week was that I was like, if I had seen this in high school when it came out, was like when it came out, I would have been in high school. It would have changed the trajectory of my entire life. (laughs) Oh, then I definitely can't wait to talk about my movie. But you're going first. Yes. Oh god. And I'm going to we are going to circle back to that. Yes. I'm just going to leave that out there so it'll <laughs> it'll leave you wanting in anticipation. So my movie for the theme Workman's Comp does not cover this. Is <laughs> a movie from 1973. It was written by William Peter Blatty based on his book of the same name. Director is William Friedkin, and it's called The Exorcist. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! Okay, so, um... Uh, I'm very afraid that I'll have so much to say about this movie that this episode will be five hours long. Go for it. We do long episodes sometimes. It's fine. Okay. Just think, I mean, maybe Casey has a life. Maybe he's got something to do. <laughs> you and I are like fucking whatever. We're like, we'll just We're do retired. a five-hour episode. <laughs> but Casey's like, um, excuse me. I have friends. I have a wife. I have a dog. I have commitments. I have a lunch date. <laughs> I have a meeting. I, I have a job. I have a, mo- I have a movie career. What am I doing with these two long-winded bitches? Okay. But... I, th- I think part of it, obviously, is that I feel like it's one of the most famous movies ever. Would you Absolutely. say that? Yeah. Absolutely. For, not just for, for being cursed, but just in general. Yeah. For being discussed, for being critiqued, for being viewed. Like, it is a very, very, very famous movie. Yeah. I mean, like, I didn't even realize that there was a, a documentary about it being cursed. I mean, there were just, I can't tell you how many articles and documentaries, stories, I mean, the production history of this movie is its own tale. The way mm. that the movie was made, which is, you know, probably one of the more famous aspects of this film because it was done with a with practical effects. I mean, it was like, it was very creatively, yep. you know, the stuff that they built, the rigs that they made to get certain shots and, you know, the makeup and the um the practical effects i mean it's amazing and i mean on top of this there's just been so much written about this movie academically too and yes. i will say that like i might touch upon a few of the of these things but don't hold it against me if i don't for time oh, no. purposes cuz you 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 can literally be a scholar of this film that's how much there has been written about it like you could yes. build a, a scholarly career discussing only this film yeah and um, I, I just watched the special features on the extended cut or the director's cut Blu-ray. So and there's like a ton of, of documentaries on that. So there's a lot of info and I definitely can't say it all. So yeah. don't hold it against me. But I mean, in terms of this film being cursed, I feel like it's one of the more famous ones. Right. And, you know, there's just a ton of these kind of weird coincidence type stories associated with the exorcist but also you know just from what i've read and what i've seen 
There seemed to have been just sort of like a general eeriness on the set that would maybe support the idea that it was a cursed movie. But Mm. look, I mean, I don't want to shoot the balloon out of the sky immediately, but I will say this movie took a long time to shoot. So because of the nature of that, it's just more time for something weird to happen. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> I think it was like 200 days or something like that. Okay. That's a long time. That is a very long Most movies take like four to six weeks. Yes. Yes. That's a long time <laughs> to be on a movie shoot. So it's like, it would be conceivable that like an old person might die. Unfortunately. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that's a long that's time. The risk you t- that's the risk you take when your agent sends you that script. You're like, yeah. am I going to be alive at the end of this? Who knows? <laughs> Shit. Um, and I also think too... And this is coming from my own experience, obviously. I feel like there's going to be a little bit of that in this episode. Like, I'm going to have to bring a lot of my own Catholicism yeah, to the episode. But there, I think there was just a lot of superstition in the air while they filmed this movie. That they mm-hmm. were f- doing something that dealt with just, like, unthinkable, blasphemous things in the eyes of Catholicism, right? Yes. So it's almost kind of like... They were generating bad vibes in a weird way. Like, that's that they were like, okay, well, we're doing this thing that's like completely insane in the eyes of anyone who's a Catholic. And I don't know if something bad happens to us, I guess we brought it on ourselves. I don't know. (laughs) Typical Catholic guilt. Like, I guess (laughs) even just discussing this is why all this bad shit's happening. We get it. We get it. And I think also, and I, I know you'll go into this, uh, of course, but like I think the fact that the star of the movie is a little girl also played a lot into uh-huh. the feeling of like being cursed or like, you know, are we doing something wrong? Or And there's definitely been a lot of critique about the fact that, you know, not just that the star was this little girl who's possessed, but, you know, what this actress had to do to portray that. Yes. So as I was doing research, again, lots of research materials on this film, you know, I was watching interviews with William Peter Blatty and Linda Blair and, you know, crew members and the cinematographer. And there's just all these stories about this film. I mean, one was that the set caught on fire at one point and everything burned except for Reagan's room. I mean, come oh, on. damn. That's a weird coincidence, don't you think? That is weird. But then, you know, there were there were deaths associated with the film, like in terms of like two of the actors in the film actually passed away while it was being filmed. Again, a long shoot, you know, older folks, you know, it can happen. But also this contributes to the idea of this film being cursed. Um, there was also just like family members of of cast members who were dying too. So it's just... You know what I mean? It was just, it just adds more fuel, you know, mm-hmm. to this theory. There was a story that they actually brought a real priest to the set to bless it, which I would do, to be honest. <laughs> I feel like sometimes we have to have a priest come bless this podcast, let alone a movie about <laughs> devil possession. Okay. Um, I, I think every, pretty much any set I've ever been on should just be blessed. Just. <laughs> Bless it, sage it, every religion, step on through and give us your best. Throw some holy water on the sage, get that going. (laughs) And, you know, one of the the more fascinating things about it, too, which is something that I definitely want to read more about, and there's an Esquire article 
Um, that's behind a paywall, sadly, so I couldn't read it. But it is um the murderinos, I'm sure, who are listening know about this already, but you know, there was an actor in The Exorcist that actually was a murderer. And what? Yes, yes. And was also called a serial killer at one point. He was one of the um neuroradiology techs in the scene of uh the um medical procedure that Reagan goes through. And I mean, it has all like there's a large story about it. It's part of why William Friedkin ended up doing cruising. Wow. It's like a whole story. But somebody in the film The Exorcist actually murdered somebody. Um, I guess it was after the film was made, but technically there's a murderer in the movie and people think about that in terms of, you know, this film being cursed. So oh, the ongoing history of this film being cursed has shockwaves. I know. And 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 also, you know, I have to say, speaking of William Friedkin, I mean, you know, he's a controversial guy for sure. I mean, there were a lot of stories that came out about the ways in which he were he used these very harsh techniques to get reactions out of actors filming The Exorcist, like he was firing guns and slapping people across the face. Very famously, you know, Ellen Burstyn and Linda Blair were both injured on the set <gasps> while they were filming, and then they used the takes in the film. So there was that there's that famous story about how Ellen Burstyn basically like got pulled too hard on her harness in um one of the scenes where she flies across the room during the um you know during one of the Reagan scenes and yeah. she actually is in pain and hurt herself and went to the hospital afterwards and then that is in the film you actually see the face that she makes in the scene is her tailbone being cracked or I, I don't know exactly Holy how she injured herself but yeah that Crazy. is morally dubious, to say the least. Yes. And and this is, I think, what I want to come back to in terms of the Linda Blair stuff, because Linda Blair was also injured during the bed thrashing scene, Oof. right? Because she was using, they were using like a harness, I guess, around her waist to kind of create that like back and forth, up and down movement. And she yeah. was injured, injured. There were multiple interviews that I saw of Linda Blair as as an adult in in more modern times where she you know basically said that William Friedkin is a genius and that you know this is part of movie making and this kind of stuff so you know it's a little like uh you know I don't know it's it's very complicated right because there are definitely like directors like Stanley Kubrick and others who have done very, very controversial things to get things out of actors while filming. And, you know, obviously it happened on The Exorcist too, so. Absolutely. Okay, so, you know, there, <laughs> this movie, when it was released, was such a sensation, like you can't even understand it. And there were so many people who thought this movie was like an actual dangerous film, you know? Besides the whole, like, everyone passing out and puking at screenings, <laughs> right? Um, ah! <laughs> like, what's the most recent movie where that was happening? It was like a sequel, like a scary clown movie, and people were like, I'm vomiting all over the place. And what? Not it. it. Not no, it, too. No, Terrifier 2. <laughs> I was like, we got a new one, folks. The puking and 
passing out movies. Maybe we should do mm. that theme, is that we should do movies where people have puked and passed out. <laughs> Which is all obviously like a, a, a great marketing tool for any film, but I saw a documentary about The Exorcist, which which actually said that at the time that it came out in 73, like there were religious leaders in in the world who were telling people that the film itself had demons in the film. <laughs> and that if you if you saw it being projected in a movie theater, the demons would then like jump from the film onto you. Like they were like telling people there are demons in the actual film strips in the theaters. That is wild considering like we we all saw in the film, if you've seen it, um, how an x-ray machine worked back then. So you're telling me they have the tech to get demons jumping out of film into <laughs> bodies, but they can't get an x-ray machine that doesn't sound like a tank clanking over your bones while they're trying to get that image? Yeah. Somehow the demon technology is great in 73. I don't know. It's always been very advanced. Demon tech has always been advanced. <laughs> so, okay, I... I want to know, when was the first time that you saw The Exorcist? I'm laughing because you know I saw it at an inappropriately young age because my grandmother and mother fucking love this movie. Oh, I, I was like, this is Danielle's grandmother's favorite film of all time, maybe? Kind of. I watched it with her this this week. What? I, I watched The Exorcist with my 90-year-old grandmother in her nursing home. Ha! <laughs> In her religious, like, Catholic nursing home with a chapel downstairs and a priest that comes to visit everyone every day. What? Because she fucking loves this movie. Now, they had enough sense to not let me see it until I was 10. Oh, 10. But I was still traumatized. Yes. And they they watched it before that because I remember hearing it in the living room. Like they would watch it at night sometimes, like it was on or they rented it or whatever. So I remember hearing it once or twice, like in the living room, but they wouldn't let me physically see it until I was 10. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they probably saw it in the movie theater when it came out. It was like that much of a sensation. Like people around the block were, were. watching this film in the theater, so... Oh, yeah. And my mom was a teenager when it came out, so anything that was, like, forbidden, she's like, I'm there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, I was pretty young when I saw this, too, but I have to say, uh, I was actually in high school when I saw it. Uh, So not 10, but maybe, like, 14, 15? Mm -hmm. I think it was about 15. And (laughs) I saw this movie for the first time on the AMC network because they played... The Exorcist on Easter one year. What a choice. I know. I was like, whoever was programming AMC back in like, you know, I don't know, the late 80s, early 90s is a genius. They have a great sense of humor. <laughs> I know. If I listen, if we had a if we had a an opportunity to play The Exorcist on Easter on TCM, I would have fucking done it every year. It would have been like 24 hours of The Exorcist on Easter. <laughs> <laughs> but but listen, on AMC, when I saw it on AMC at my parents' house, I was fucking traumatized by it. I had nightmares about everything, especially the head-turning scene. I had yep. nightmares for weeks about that shit. And it's funny because for for years afterwards, whenever I would flip the channels on TV and I would like, flip them and I would go really fast over AMC because I was afraid they were playing it. Like... 
I was fucking traumatized by that shit. And I remember also sitting in the living room with, and I was my dad's best friend. You know, his family was spending Easter with us. And I remember he came in and said, you're watching the edited version. I don't know if you know that, but this is edited for television. The real version is like a hundred times worse and I would never allow you to see it. Like, and I was like, I love what? that caveat. That caveat yes. of like, you ain't even seeing the real shit. I know, I know. <laughs> And I was like, I mean, when that happened, I was like, oh, my God. I mean, I, I was like, is this a video nasty? Like, what are we watching a snuff movie? Like, it was just very alluring and very um, scary to me. But then, at, so the last time I saw it, okay, the last time I saw it was when it was in the theater in 2000 when they released the version you've never seen which is also known as now like the extended director's cut, okay? And I remember telling my roommate David at the time, I was like, we went and saw that movie together. And I remember telling him that we got home, I was like, I'm going to have to sleep in the living room because I do not want to be in a bedroom of any kind. I don't want to sleep in my bed. <laughs> like, so I slept on the couch or something and I we were like, the li- all the lights are going to be on. We're not turning any lights off tonight. Oh, God. It was... <laughs> Terrifying. We will, we will take the hit on our PG&E bill to not be scared tonight. Let me tell you right now, when I saw that crab walk, Ooh. I screamed in the movie theater. Like, I screamed because I had never seen the crab walk before. Like, they they had taken that shit out and then they put it back in and I was like, oh my God, this is insane. I am... Scared beyond belief. But I, that was 23 years ago, okay? <laughs> that was the last time I saw this movie, okay? And listen, I have to say, I mean, everybody knows by this point I grew up Catholic, which basically means that I'm a broken adult. I do not really believe in religion at this point in my life. I don't go to church or anything. But I absolutely grew up thinking the devil was a real thing and that the concept of being possessed by, like, a evil spirit or a demon was real, maybe. Like, I grew up with that maybe being a reality, okay? Mm-hmm. Like, it's because, honestly, my mother is, like, an old-school Filipino Catholic. She's very superstitious to this day. I think I've talked about that Yes. before. My dad is from Italy, very Catholic people. <laughs> his, pa- his parents, like my grandparents, his parents, they brought a lot of that kind of stuff into my life. I mean, mm-hmm. I have saints in this house right now who are apparently protecting me. I don't know what to do. I don't want to remove it in case, <laughs> you know, something happens. But like, you know, I can't, like, that's the thing is that this stuff has been ingrained in me for my entire life, okay? But I will say about The Exorcist particularly, I feel like there's a lot of 70s bleak movie magic that's happening that has also just amped this whole thing up for me, okay? Like, one of the good things about the film is that it reminds you, it does a really good job of reminding people, like, guess what? The exorcism ritual is actually really old. We don't really do it anymore. There's a lot of red tape if you want to do an exorcism. Like, you got to go way back in the back of the book to even know what to do. You got to bring in a special dude. You got to kiss the cross. You got to kiss the liturgical vestiment purple thing before you wrap it around your neck. 
There's a lot of old rules that are going to be very creepy. Like, all that stuff has contributed to my fear of this film. Okay. Yeah, because it's tied directly to something that you experienced in real life, which was church (laughs) and priests. (laughs) Right. But it's like, it's also telling me, you know, basically like, okay, you might be possessed by a demon, maybe, if you're bad. And that if you are, it's going to take a lot of bullshit to get it out of your body. That's Mm -hmm. what it was. That's the message that I got from The Exorcist. And I was like, no, no, not me. Never. Because here's the thing. If you you watch any modern day exorcisms, like on TV or YouTube, they're funny and fake as shit. Like, yep. Do you remember the show Nathan for You where yes. there was an episode where they had that exorcist guy come on and oh he God. he exorcised Nathan's hemorrhoid demons like yes! like <laughs> Oh god the shit he was saying I will it's it's one of the funniest I mean that whole series truly but like that was one of the funniest moments of that show Yeah I mean even before he <laughs> tried to get hemorrhoid demons out of Nathan Fielder's butt. Like, when he just showed up, like, when they were showing videos of him, like, when they found him online or whatever, I was like, come on. Like, I'm not scared of this. This is not scary to me. But for whatever reason, the exorcism in The Exorcist is scary. So. That's legit. That's legit. Yeah. But also, I have to say, too, and this is, this is again, like, I think, not to toot my own horn, but there's something I say on the podcast a lot, which is that, You should watch movies again. Like, watch them at different points of your life. Because I have to say, I haven't seen this movie in 23 years since up until recently. I have a completely different way into the film now that I just did not have when I was younger, which is that I'm not as scared of the religious stuff and even that kind of like monster type of stuff that's happening with Reagan. But things that have happened to me personally in my life over the course of just aging, like illnesses, death, hospital stays. I mean, this is the scariest part of the film to me now. Is not the, like, head-turning shit. It's more of, like, the sounds of the giant x-ray machines that they used in the 70s and -hmm. a lot of other things we'll talk about in just a second. But, like... That's the thing now. It's like, I'm like, oh, okay, well, this movie hits on a completely different level, and I'm just glad I saw it again because, obviously, it's it's given yeah. me a new way into the film. So I'm not going to, like, go through the beats necessarily a ton. I'm just going to say, like, if you haven't seen this film at all and you need a one-sentence synopsis, just know it's this. At an archaeological dig in northern Iraq, a priest digs up an icon of a demon named Pazuzu, and eventually that demon makes its way into the body of a 12-year-old girl who lives in Washington, D.C. These colonizers be fucking around the dirt too much. I'm telling you. Like, and look, I, I actually had seen a part of a documentary that talked about how this beginning of the film, like, the origin story of, like, the Pazuzu thing is actually pretty accurate, like, historically. Like, Pazuzu is actually a demon from Mesopotamia. So the idea that Max von Sydow would be digging up a relic of him in northern Iraq or whatever, the beginning of this film, is actually kind of correct, which I think is very fascinating. That is all all I'm thinking right now is the B-52 song, Mesopotamia. Yep. Where he says, before I talk, I should read a book. Before I talk, I should read a book. Yep. 
Max von Sydow should have taken that advice. Before I dig, <laughs> I should read a book. Oh yeah. And he, and listen, after he digs up this little relic, it's it's on because basically like Pazuzu is unleashed and then he finds this family named the McNeils and it's an actress who is uh named Chris, and she's played by Ellen Burstyn, and her young daughter, Reagan, who is played by Linda Blair. Now, Chris is actually filming a movie, and they're renting a house in Georgetown, which is, like, in Washington, D.C., and Reagan's dad isn't in the picture, so Chris is, like, a single mom, and she also has this assistant, by the way, who is played by the actress Kitty Wynn, and she is the essence of who I want to be as a woman. Like, that 70s lady with, like, the messy bun and like <laughs> the turtleneck vest oh and the pants. Like she, Kitty Wynn is like so gorgeous in this movie. I'm just like, I love it. She brings a little bit of glamour. Okay. And she goes through it. She goes through it. Yeah. Because here's the thing she absolutely does not get paid enough to deal with the shit that she eventually goes through. Hell, no. I can't even believe she stuck around to help hack. Oh, I was like, you, I would have quit so fucking fast. Get out of there, Sharon. <laughs> yeah. So here's the thing. Like, you know, the course of the film, Reagan, the daughter, she starts having these medical issues. And they they kind of chalk it up to like ADD, perhaps, at first. But then things are getting progressively worse. And I think we all understand how they get progressively worse. I mean, it's just that she's like, her body's changing. She's having convulsions. Like, there's a lot of like supernatural shit happening. Okay. And then... She's going to the doctors back and forth. They start maybe believing that she's got like a lesion on her brain. And so then they start putting Reagan through this like horrifying series of tests, which I feel like is less talked about when it comes to the actual horror of The Exorcist. Yeah. That needle in the neck. Oh, OK. You know me. I had to fucking Google this shit because I was like... Uh, this is, and this is definitely because of the medical shit that I've gone through, but I was like, there's no fucking way they do this now. What is this, like, medieval, torturous, fucked up scene? Which is that angiogram scene where they stick the needle in her neck and then the blood kind of spurts out, mm. okay? I mean, shit is fucking intense. Like, maybe the most intense part of the movie for me now yeah. but like i was looking it all up and so when in the moment in when they filmed this film this was absolutely how they did it and in the movie it's done by an actual doctor who would do them in real life Ooh. so it was apparently very accurate and it was how they do it i read that they don't use that artery, that neck artery anymore, they actually do it like through the leg or somewhere that's mm. less, you know, invasive. But they still do these tests, but it's just not in the neck, which is, yeah, oh my God, too much. And they're like holding her head down, like, oh God, oh my God. so brutal. And I think what's really intense is the machines, the sound of the x-ray machines. Yes. It sounds like, you know, horrible bombs going off. I mean, it, it is... It shook me. This scene shook me to death. And I just, I mean, fuck the pea soup, okay? This is the scariest part for me. And I think part of it is that 
there is a terror of 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 what's actually happening to her, which is that there's all these doctors and they're doing all these procedures and they're using all these like really scary tools to try to figure out what's wrong with her and they can't figure out what's wrong with her. Yeah. Conceptually, that's a terrifying thing, right? And it happens to people all the time, okay? Totally. So simultaneously, you have Father Karras. We meet Father Karras. He's played by Jason Miller. Father Karras is a priest who is a psychologist as well, and he's admitting at the beginning of the film that he is suffering a, a wavering of his faith, right? right? And I think that part of it is that he's taking care of his sick mother, and he feels this enormous sense of guilt that he can't live with her and be with her every day. I have to think that a lot of that is due to his cultural background. He's Greek. His mother is Greek. And at a certain point in the film, he has to put her into a hospital where she's in a room with women who are mentally ill. And it's just that scene that, you know, the mother is strapped to the bed. It's just that movie scene that we have seen before, which I think has completely influenced the idea of having to put people into institutions and hospitals, right? Mm. And it's it's harrowing and sad, and you feel his guilt throughout the entire film. So you've got these two characters now, Reagan. Father Karras, they're navigating their way through the healthcare system, and it's failing them, ultimately. And like I said, you have a young girl who can't be helped by science to figure out what's going on with her, and this man who can't afford to care for his elderly mother. This is shit that I never thought about when I was 15. That yeah. now is, like, front and center for me. You know? Same. And just stuff that you just go through in life, and that's why you watch movies again. I digress, but it's, um, you know, th this film is really, really interesting. I mean, I honestly, uh, one thing I didn't pick up on in the past was that the, it's actually the doctors that suggest the exorcism to Chris. Like, yeah. once they can't figure out what's wrong with her, they're like, well, have you tried this? And I'm like, whoa, I guess I never realized that before. After they dismiss her completely, because she kind of pushes them to that point, because they're like, we don't know what's wrong with her. It's got to be psychological. And then they're like, well, maybe an exorcism? Stop yeah. yelling at us. <laughs> yeah, and like I said, and when she contacts Father Karras, you know, he's immediately like, yeah, there's going to be a lot of bureaucracy here. Like, I'm going to have to ask and beg to do this because they don't do this shit anymore. And again, I think it goes back to this, like, recurring theme in this movie that never occurred to me before, which is that there's, like, a lot of failure of systems in this film, right? right? And I think in the early 70s, this is probably something that people thought about a lot. So, you know, it's just another interesting thing about the film that I read into it this time watching it. Now, there's a lot of things that are said about Reagan in this film under her possessed state. I'm not going to lie. There's a lot of campy moments. Okay. Like, yeah. there's a point where Reagan or Pazuzu, whomever, is doing like a tight five, like with. Father Karras, like, they're just chatting. He's like, <laughs> now, Kylie, and do these straps. Like, he's, you know, he's fucking hitting, hitting some jokes, okay? <laughs> and that is obviously very funny to me. But then there's, like, some legitimately fucked up moments. I mean, obviously, I think that crucifix masturbation scene, the, you know, that is, like, such a point of contention for people. 
And then just like the vomiting and the peeing and stuff. I mean, for me, the wheezing, I was like, I can't deal with this wheezing <laughs> coming from the downstairs. Like, what the fuck? Like, it's, oh it's, it's a lot. And then, you know, I have to say, for the record, I don't, I, I, this is probably obvious to a lot of people who love The Exorcist, but like, I forgot that Mercedes McCambridge is the voice of the demon. And we talked about her in Johnny Guitar. I'm like, that's my lady. I love her. And the fact that she's Pazuzu's voice is an incredible fact. But oh, no. to wrap up the, the film, and I'm like, again, the ending, I would never give it away because I feel like people should watch this movie. Even if you, even if you actually have seen this movie before, you got to watch it again. Um, once Father Karras is given the okay to do the exorcism f- to Reagan, the the tr- I love this part because again, didn't occur to me in the past, but they're like, well, if you're gonna do it, you gotta bring in the big guns, you gotta bring in Father Marin, Max von Sydow, and you know, Bergman guy, perfect dude to play this role. Okay, and something that never occurred to me on top of the thing that didn't occur to me is that he was only like in his thirties or forties when he filmed this movie. So they gave him old man makeup. And I was like, all throughout my childhood, I thought he was an 80 year old man for like 40 years. Me too. (laughs) When he actually died, I was like, wait, what? I know. I was like, the old man makeup worked. We all thought he was 80 when he was really 30. So that is wild. Yeah. And the thing, the thing about it is that, so the head of the church is like, okay, here's the deal. We got to bring in Father Marin. He's like 800 years old. He's popping nitroglycerin. The last time he did one of these things, it took like a fucking month and he almost died, but he's the only dude who could do it. Like that's a setup of all setups. And then the thing that I actually didn't realize is that I didn't realize that this was like a one last job movie. Like, this right. movie is a one last job for Father Marin. And I'm like, wow. Absolutely. Did not occur to me. And it's funny because the whole, the, the his showing up to the house is such a famous scene. I mean, it's like in the poster, it's like what everybody visualizes when they think of The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. And he comes in, I mean, everyone's like, who's that guy? Okay. And then he just comes in as like, Don't give me nothing. Let's go. Like, I don't need it. Like, I don't need to talk about it. I don't need brandy. I don't need whatever. Just like, let's go. Just get me my fucking vestments. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, although I do think he does a little brandy in the coffee, but he's all like, no time for chit-chat. We got to hit this right now. And then when he starts getting loud, dude, it's a wrap. My friend Cliff used to walk around parties, and when he would get drunk, he would, like, dip his hand in his drink and spritz water on people and shout the power of christ compels you and it used to crack me the fuck up yeah i that part to me is as a catholic pretty terrifying like i'm like (laughs) if i had two guys screaming the power of christ compels you at me then something bad has happened (laughs) like they gotta scream this shit out of my body and I don't want that at all to happen to me. And they're like slashing your legs with holy water. Like it is a scene. Yeah. When he when Father Marin shows up, it's a fucking it's a party in a whole different sense. Yeah, I know. And it's it, like that whole exorcism scene, it, there's such a build up to it and then when it happens, it really does play out in a very slow 
I mean, I I gotta say, in terms of tension building, this movie is it for me. It really does build and build and build. And I mean, it's a masterpiece, honestly. Like to me, for all of the things that are said about it, for the fact that it's just become such a part of our popular culture, like if you're just talking about like a story that's built, you know, that creates fear and tension. Yeah. It does it for me. It's like the scariest movie I've ever seen. I mean, there are things about it that are obviously like on the funny side. I I don't know if I'm really like caring about the Lee J. Cobb character. I feel like that whole thing is a little... Well, Kinderman, he he plays the, the cop who comes to investigate, you know, what's happening. And like, he keeps telling everyone he's lying. Like, so he'll say something and they're like, really? He's like, no, I'm lying. And I'm like, what? What? <laughs> this is not the time for fucking jokes and lies and mistrust. Like, we're trying to get to the bottom of what's wrong with this kid. Well, and I get that there needs to be some kind of element that reminds us that there's crimes happening. Like, there was a murder right. that happened. Like, people are getting pushed down the stairs. I get that there needs to be somebody that reminds us of that, that takes it out of the supernatural and, and makes it a crime. But to right. me... All he's really doing is trying to get people to go to the movies with him. And I'm kind of like, all right. Truly. <laughs> he's like, we can go see a movie. I got the I got the fucking connects. And you're like, can you focus for one second, Kinderman? <laughs> yeah. And and I don't know. So I there's a you know, a couple things obviously that that are a little less scary <laughs> or whatever. But I honestly, in terms of curse films. I feel like this was the one to pick for me this week. And just considering how personally I feel about it too, like watching it again was an experience. Like even when I was writing about it, when I was writing notes about it, I was like, this feels cursed. These are cursed notes in a cursed Google doc. You're haunted by it. You're haunted. Well, what, and what actually, like what were, I know you mentioned some of the things, but like, like I don't know all the things that happened on set that made people think this was a curse movie in general. Mm-hmm. So besides the priest basically saying there's demons in the film stock, <laughs> like who died, like what? Yeah, I think it was the fire, the fire that yeah. happened, the idea of there being deaths associated with the set, you know, the creepy feelings. I mean, I, I like... Listen, I will say that I feel like your movie, there's way more mythology yeah. to that point than mine. But I feel like there was a general feeling that the movie was haunted or possessed yeah. because, you know, people were making such an intense film about a blasphemous situation. Like, I mean, you know, like that kind of thing. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that's, I think, you know, to the point of what you're saying is that it, it's cursed because there was like accidents and things happening on set. So, so wild. So yeah. wild. Ugh. Well, I was, I was happy to rewatch this with my grandmother when Reagan's head turns around. She, I've never heard her laugh so hard. Yeah. <laughs> and this is why I'm like, I'm so confused about things that are supposed to be scary now. Cause I'm like, well, this is something that growing up I would have, I learned to laugh at. Mm hmm. And so The Exorcist, when I saw it as a kid, was scary. And I, I particularly didn't like the crucifix scene because I'm like, mm. or when she would be like, lick me. And I'm like, I don't like this oh, yeah. um, at all. <laughs> but I definitely, um, like the, the bed and the, you know, there are things about the film itself that I always thought were more comical. And possibly that's just my reaction, my stress reaction to wanting to like take the fear out because I also grew up Catholic. And, you know, not to the point where it was, 
you know, a regular thing for us to go to church. But, you know, we had crosses in our house and we, you know, taught to believe in that shit. And I was just like, I don't like this movie. But the movie is favorable towards Catholicism because, you know, they they win. They get the demon out. (laughs) Well, and that's, you know, that's a whole other subject to talk about. I mean, honestly, you know, like there were just things in this movie that, you know, growing up, I just couldn't imagine. Like, I mean, at one point, Reagan calls a priest and the F word. And I was like, yeah. whoa, holy yeah. shit. Like, you know, the crucifixion scene, the desecration of, you know, is it the Virgin Mary, then the church? Yeah. That kind of stuff seems so wicked to me growing up. Absolutely. That is, that's the power of it, I think, is, is just uh, what happens when you take the absolute, like, thing that you shouldn't ever imagine doing and do it on in a movie. Yeah. Completely taboo. Completely taboo. Well, this this was a great pick for for Workman's Comp. We'll not cover that. <laughs> Pazuzu ain't burning this set. I am getting my check. Like, I'm not coming to work today. I, w- <laughs> I will be filing a claim <laughs> on Pazuzu. <laughs> oh, oh, God, shit. I love it. That was, yeah, it's fantastic. I really love going back to and watching this movie, too, because I think that you know, having not seen it since I was probably a teenager, you know, just kept catching glimpses of it, you know, the ends of it when it was on TV or something, but not like really sitting down and watching it all the way through since I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. I also keyed in on different things and was like, I don't know if I could hang on that set. Like Ellen Burstyn is a G and Lin- you know, Linda Blair is, is they're tough because this was a tough set mm-hmm. to be on, to be like witnessing these things as an actor and kind of being part of that crew and being part of that. I, I just, I couldn't hang. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, my film for the theme, Workman's Comp does not cover this, was released in 1994. It's directed by Alex Proyas. The screenplay is by David Shaw and John Shirley, but it's based on the comic book by James O'Barr. And my film is The Crow. Is that gasoline I smell? Time take home. I forgot that that Stone Temple Pilot song was from this movie. I know. I feel like every week uh, we we really put the uh, exactly right attorneys to their paces because <laughs> we're always like every week we're like, uh, let's sing this whole lyric or like it's cool if we just like reference the Beatles for twenty minutes straight, right? Then mind if we just sing all the Beatles songs. <laughs> if, if we do not get legal clearance. <laughs> For me singing a Stone Temple Pilot song, it's fine. <laughs> You'll take it. You'll take the take a knee on that one. If we oh, edit it out, I'm fine with it. Well, this movie, when it came out, um, I did see it in the theaters. Mm. I was obsessed with the soundtrack. I was 16 when the movie came out. And the 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 main reason I picked it for this theme is because it was the first movie where something disastrous happened in a way that I felt affected my life. Like, I was waiting for this movie. I was excited about it. I loved Bruce Lee. Like, I was psyched for this movie. And when it happened, it was like the biggest shock and tragedy because it I'd never experienced anything like that in real time. Wow, yeah. So, But I also picked it because the legacy of this type of accident is something we're still seeing happening now. Yep. So essentially, 
This movie stars Brandon Lee, who is the son of Bruce Lee and Linda Lee Caldwell. And Brandon Lee was born in 1965, uh, and his father, Bruce Lee, huge martial arts star, died suddenly in 1973 when Brandon was eight years old. Mm. So the the way that his father died, and that he died young, and that he died of like an allergic reaction, is kind of tied to the history of this film being cursed and the family being cursed. Mm. So, you know, Brandon Lee grew up without his dad, and he kind of... In some accounts, I, I read like he kind of had like a wayward childhood where he got in trouble a little bit, and but then you know he committed to studying martial arts and he went to college for theater and he started starring in films and he turned down a lot of films that had to do with his dad. I think he kind of grew up um, feeling really awkward about his dad, uh, his dad's legacy at least, because he would you know go train for martial arts and see like huge pictures of his dad all over the studios and be like, "This is weird." So he. But he did, you know, again, he kind of leveled out, started training properly, and started starring in films. So he, his first film was Legacy of Rage, which was released in 1986. And then he starred in things like Laser Mission and Showdown in Little Tokyo and Rapid Fire. Um, and by all accounts, when he was filming this movie, his life was in a pretty good place. He was engaged to Eliza Hutton. Uh, who he met in Rennie Harlan's office. She was Rennie Harlan's assistant. Uh, and they were engaged. They met in 1991. They were engaged in October of 1992. And The Crow was supposed to be Brandon Lee's breakout role. Yeah. So the tragedy of this film is that Brandon Lee died on the set. He had filmed most of his scenes, but he died on the set during a scene that includes a gun. You can read about the specifics of it. I'm going to tell you as much as I can based on, um, like, the Wikipedia article and his own, like, the Bruce Lee Foundation website and some other places. But the gun was basically, it was improperly loaded with dummy rounds, and it wasn't checked and cleared before they filmed the fatal scene. So this is an accident that also did not have to happen. And what happened is that there's this actor who pulled the trigger and shot Lee in a choreographed scene. But according to the Wikipedia article, quote, Lee fell backwards instead of forwards as he was supposed to. When the director said cut, Lee did not stand up and the crew thought he was either still acting or kidding around. Jeff Amata, who immediately checked Lee, noticed something was wrong when he came close and Lee was unconscious and breathing heavily. Medic Clyde Basie went over and shook Lee to see if he was dazed by hitting his head during the fall. Um, but he didn't think Lee had been shot since there was no visible bleeding. Basie took Lee's pulse, which was regular, but within two to three minutes, it slowed down dramatically and stopped. So... They filmed this movie. It's set in Detroit, but they filmed it in North Carolina. He was rushed to the hospital in Wilmington, and they attempted to save his life for six hours. After six hours of emergency surgery, um, he was pronounced dead on March 31st, 1993, and he was 28 years old, which is so tragically young. Oh, uh, he's, he's buried next to his father in Lakeview Cemetery in Seattle. And again, like the tragedy of this just compounds. It's, it just keeps compounding because Brandon Lee and Eliza Hutton were supposed to be married three weeks later on April 17th after he finished filming. And The Crow, you'll notice, is dedicated to Brandon and Eliza. Um, so there's also, I think the tough thing about this 
in so many ways. Um, not just you know, the tragedy is immeasurable, but there's also a bit of life imitating art in this film specifically because the main character and the fiance uh, in this film die the night before their wedding. Uh, it's just like those little kinds of things make, made people really feed into the the fervor of like, oh my God, this is a cursed situation for the family um, because of these little things that seemed like to parallel uh, his his character in the movie. Yeah. It was really weird <laughs> when it yeah. happened. Yeah. No, there's like this whole, um, I watched the episode of Cursed Films about the crow and they they were obviously bringing up a lot of things, but it was also that whole idea of in Bruce Lee's final movie, The Game of Death, there was a scene in the movie where he accidentally gets hit with um, a bullet mm-hmm. um, on a on a shoot or something, and like just that coincidence alone was yeah. I was like rocked by that like i just was like i can't even believe that that is something that happened like it was just so strange such a strange coincidence right oh yeah people just could not stop themselves from noticing all these little parallels in these you know prophetic connective marks that are just kind of too weird to be just explained yeah and it's it's just sad because you know Brandon Brandon Lee was survived by his mother Linda and his sister Shannon Lee and Shannon is an accomplished martial artist in her own right and she's president of the Bruce Lee Foundation. She studied Jeet Kune Do, Taekwondo, kickboxing. She's an author. Her book is Be Be Water My Friend: The Teachings of Bruce Lee. And she in particular along with Eliza Hutton, Eliza kind of broke her 28-year silence about this and Shannon spoke out about this as well. In the wake of the tragic shooting death of um, Helena Hutchins, the cinematographer on the set of Rust, Mm -hmm. who was killed in 2021, she was 42 years old. And in November of 2021, Shannon Lee wrote a guest column in Variety, where she asks what I think are some pretty poignant questions. Um, She says, quote, Could we require actors to receive mandatory gun safety training before handling a gun on a film set so that they can have some sovereignty over their safety and the safety of those they are pointing a firearm at? Could the person in charge of safety on a film set not be the same person in charge of making sure the production runs on time and on budget so there are no conflicts of interest or cutting of corners? Could a seasoned and competent gun safety specialist be required to be on set any time a real firearm is being used, even just for one setup? And could that specialist be the only person to handle the weapons and hand them to the actors? Could we consider a shift away from using real firearms on sets as much as possible? And can we think of this shift as innovation rather than punishment? Yeah. And so she, like, you know, has been, he's been, he's been gone for 28 years, but she's, you know, this, she and Eliza and, and Linda, like everyone who was affected by this, still feels the repercussions of it so strongly and can't and cannot imagine like every time it happens it's i'm sure it's like a ripping of the wound open for yeah. these senseless deaths and george clooney weirdly said the same thing cuz he was friends with brandon lee and i read this article in people magazine where he said and i quote brandon and i played ball and hung out at the hollywood ymca 3 days a week we were buddies and this was his big break. Now every single time I'm handed a gun on the set, every time they hand me a gun, I look at it. I open it. I show it to the person I'm pointing it to. I show it to the crew. 
Every single take, you hand it back to the armorer when you're done. You do it again, and part of it is because of what happened to Brandon. Everyone does it. So his death really kind of changed the way a lot of people handle guns on set. It didn't stop guns from being on set, but it changed the handling of it. So I think that, you know, I just think we owe it to his family and friends to not just discuss the tragedy of of the event before we discuss the film that killed him and to not just gloss over it, but also to remember like the shockwave of loss uh, that affects anyone who experiences the death of a loved one due to gun violence. Um, so it's, yeah, it was just super, super tragic. And he, again, he had filmed most of his scenes, but they had to get stunt doubles and, you know, people to kind of fill in for certain scenes. And he died before he got to really experience most of his life. He died at 28 years old. And it's just, again, it's very sad. And I think when when I came out or when this movie came out, you know, I was 16 and, I was sad because it happened in real time and I'd never, and I love Bruce Lee and I'd never seen it before, but like, or I, I'd never seen anything like this before. Um, but I also was 16 and I was shallow and I was sad that he was dead because he was gorgeous. Oh my God. Don't even get me started. <laughs> he was the hottest guy I'd ever seen. And I was like, why did the sweet Lord take him from me? Listen, I, I love a half Asian as much as the next person, but it really hit me how how beautiful he was. Like I was like, because I I did not see this movie and in, in when it came out, and I don't know how, considering that I was a member of the Seven Deadly Monkeys and all these things. I think to be honest with you, I feel like I feel like the death had an influence on whether or not I wanted to see it. I think I thought it was too creepy. Right. I don't think I wanted to go and see a movie where I knew somebody had died, and so I just I don't mm-hmm. know. I felt like. Maybe it, the fact that it it did seem cursed in a way, like, told me not to see it. You know what I mean? Right. Oh, yeah. It's it's even now, watching it today, like, it is incredibly eerie because there are so many guns in this movie. Oh, I know. And it is, he gets shot a lot. And it is hard to watch to this day, knowing what happened to him. I yeah. completely understand that. Yeah, and I, but it's funny because like I said, I was kind of joking about it uh, at the beginning of, you know, our theme where I was saying that if I had seen this movie when I was supposed to have seen it as a teenager, it would have changed the trajectory of my life. I mean, honestly, like, I, I, like style-wise, this was it for me. Like, I was like, oh yep. my God, this is like, this is like the Matrix and, you know, all like John Wick and all these movies that come from this type of thing, which is like, Absolutely. you know, a hot dude kicking ass, great soundtrack. You know, I just was like, this would have like completely changed me. But it would have. I truly cannot believe you hadn't, because I think the same thing. Yeah, I think you would have been the person to have written John Wick or a John Wick style <laughs> universe. For Brandon Lee, <laughs> had he survived, and had you seen this movie, you could be like, you would have been like the premier goth of Atlanta, I think, if you'd seen this. I, that would have been like, I would have been standing on a rooftop with smeared eye eyeliner listening to that song every damn day after school. I, I still have this, the cassette. <laughs> <laughs> I still have the cassette, not even going to front. And look, The Cure 
has a song on it. Like you want to you want to sanction and bless your fucking goth ass movie. Put an original song by The Cure on there. But yeah, this soundtrack was fucking hot. It was a hot-ass soundtrack. And the movie, and the reason I I kind of wanted to also talk about Brandon Lee's life, not just to pay a little bit of homage to him and his family, is that the movie was supposed to be his his breakout role. Um, It definitely was a commercial and critical success in the wake of his death. And I don't think it would have been had he lived, because it's not a great movie. It's just an mm-hmm. interesting movie. Yeah. Part of it is that it's based on a comic book. They have, you know, they stay true to the the content and it just doesn't age well, but it wasn't great, but it was interesting. And now watching it again, I haven't seen it in decades. And watching it again, I'm like, I think he would have been a good comic actor and I would have liked to have seen him do more action, more action roles, but it wasn't a great movie. <laughs> so... Yes, I, I, it's one of those things, is it good or was I horny type of scenarios. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely, uh, had I seen this movie when we were doing that bracket, I would have put this right at the top because I was horny for Brandon Lee. Sorry. Rest in peace, King. I was horny for you. I was like, those abs, like the whole thing. I was like, oh my gosh. And I definitely, I could tell myself, I was like, if I had seen this in 94, I would have thought this was a fucking masterpiece of of (laughs) filmmaking. But then seeing it now, seeing it now, you're like, oh, yeah. Some of these scenes, like the weird kind of um, transition scenes are kind of corny. You know, like, come on. And a lot of that is just like, again, like the tech doesn't age well or whatever. But like, when he busts out of that grave and starts scaling that, fire escape without a shirt on and his back is all you know not even like muscles but his back is all like muscly and i was like this is this is it for me i cannot believe (laughs) the sweet lord took this back out of the world i (laughs) how fucking dare he sweet back for sure (laughs) but i will say so this movie again one sentence synopsis After getting murdered trying to save his girlfriend during a break-in and sexual assault, Eric Draven becomes back from the dead as the Crow, a vigilante set upon seeking revenge against the men who killed them. So, the movie takes place in Detroit. Um, Eric Draven, the Crow, and his girlfriend Shelly are killed on Devil's Night, the night before Halloween, uh, which in the fictional version of Detroit means there are 143 fires going (laughs) <laughs> like that is how we enter the movie. This city is sizzling. Wow, sizzling. <laughs> 143 fires. And we find out later that Shelley was targeted because she was trying to rally the tenants in their building to prevent eviction at the hand of the city's crime boss. So we come in and they're like, you know, he he's dead. Like he's He's been pushed out of a window. She's still alive, but hanging on, um, which again, also weird, sh- like shitty parallel to real life that he was worked on for six hours. And mm. oh, God, just awful. But Ernie Hudson plays <laughs> a detective named Albrecht. And you know, I love Ernie Hudson. He is an OG in my world. And he will smoke a cigarette over your body. As your body is being loaded into an ambulance by the EMS. <laughs> he is, he's, he's a detective who's been demoted to beat cop, and he kind of doesn't give a shit. Yo, smoked out king. That's like all he's doing in this movie is smoking chaining. cigarettes. <laughs> Just chaining it. 
And so he's just like smoking like, yeah, this sucks. But it also kind of piques his curiosity and kind of gets him back in detective mode. Uh, So Eric is a musician who was in a band called Hangman's Joke. So 90s. Um, (laughs) And he is just absolutely dead. No question about it. Smashed on the sidewalk dead. There's there's a precocious little kid named Sarah who kind of skateboards everywhere. And we later find out that her mom um, is addicted to drugs and dating one of the bad guys. Yes. So everything happens. He's dead. A year later, Sarah goes to his grave to lay flowers, and a crow is there, and the crow is pecking on the headstone. Like, knock, knock, motherfucker. Time to get some revenge. And there's this whole explanation in the beginning, you know, this kind of voiceover from Sarah about how crows carry, in some cultures, crows carry souls to the next life, but if they've been wronged in this life, they're brought back to seek revenge or to fix what was wrong. So Crow starts tapping on that headstone. Eric explodes out of his own grave. And then the Crow just starts leading him around like fucking Animal Crossing. <laughs> like, he goes back to his apartment. And when he starts touching things, he has these like visceral memories. His cat is still, his cat is not only still alive, his cat still lives there and has like a silky mane. Yeah. <laughs> like this white, long-haired cat has somehow remained pristine in this filth building. Yeah, where there's 140-something fires going on. 143 fires. Uh, But he's, you know, he's touching things and he's reliving shit and he's, like, you know, grabbing onto the fucking smashed window handle and his his hands bleed, but then he realizes that the the cuts, like, instantly heal. And I'm like, all right, I can get why the cuts heal because we're doing some magical realism. How does his one-year-old dead body still have blood? Can we go go back and explain that for a minute? No? Okay, fine. (laughs) We're moving on. Doesn't matter. Um, he sees a little porcelain mask hanging in the apartment and he paints his face white with these, you know, black lips and black lines. They did him so dirty with that makeup. Because how dare you cover up that gorgeous face? I know. I know. How dare you <laughs> make him look like a fucking Harlequin? They're like, well, we gave you the back. Okay. Back we ain't can't, enough. We got to do something. Got to give him some kind of look. Yeah. They're like, look, we put him in leather pants. What more do you want from me? He's still kind of a musician. Hangman's joke is playing tonight. And the crow is just like, all right, you got your outfit. Time to become your seeing eye crow. Like, see, (laughs) look through my vampire eyes. Look through my crow eyes. (laughs) And they start cruising on the street because now his whole purpose is like, I I have been brought back. I'm going to kill everyone who was involved in my murder and the murder of my fiance. Yeah. The killer so of killers, fun. as he's called, right? The killer of killers. So he has to go find this gang. And the gang are these guys named T-Bird, Tintin, Skank, and Funboy. And when we meet them, they're pumping their fists in the air, shouting, fire it up. Like some real insurrectionist January 6th bullshit. Yeah. And they're also just swallowing bullets. Like, I would come back for revenge, too, if I was killed by those idiots. If I was killed by someone who swallowed bullets for fun, I would come back and be like, you gotta go. I know. Didn't you see, didn't you notice Lawrence Mason in this movie who was in Hackers? Yes. And I was like, he's always part of, like, an alternative guy gang. 100%. He is always, like, that dude <laughs> in the gang. But yeah, so Lawrence Mason plays Tintin, and he's the first to go. And all you need to know about Tintin is he has a long black leather coat and endless knives. <laughs> Tintin can pull a knife out of thin fucking air. Yeah. 
the crow finds him and is like, I'm going to tell you a story. You fucking, you know, sexually assaulted my fiance and killed me. And he was like, yeah, so what? <laughs> like, yeah. 143 fires, dude. We do that shit all the time. <laughs> but when they find him, when they find his body, he every single knife he owns is stuck in his chest. And later, one of the um, other bad guys is like, they stuck the knives in his chest in alphabetical order of his organs. And I'm like, how do you know that? <laughs> That's how detail. they do things here. That's Detroit. how they do it. And we also get his sigil in blood on the wall, the sigil of the crow. Mm-hmm. I mean... Eric Draven definitely was in high school theater. Like, he is so dramatic. Oh, my gosh. He's a very dramatic dude. So then he hits up a pawn, a pawn shop where, like, you know, typically, like you do, he loads up a shotgun with wedding rings and then grabs a guitar and lights the place on fire. Grabbing the guitar is something that 94 Melita Cherico would have fucking loved. The little touch. The little touch would have Tiny wrecked me. Because he he took Tintin's coat, so now he's got his long leather and his leather pants, and he grabbed a guitar, a black guitar. <laughs> Come on. This dude's on point. And for me, the funniest part, of, the movie's kind of funny. Like, there's, there's this one part where um, somebody, you know, the cops kind of find Draven, and they tell him to stick his hands up and not move, and he, like, tap dances off the screen. <laughs> screen which is hilarious to me i don't know i love it but the all-time funniest thing in this movie which continues to make me laugh all these years later is when albrecht draws the makeup of the crow on the band photo of eric and he's like is this the guy that i met i don't know (laughs) is this the killer of killers he just like uses his sharpie to like make a little lipstick so it's just really fucking funny and then you know you get you get your typical it's the kind of the dark, gritty movie of him going through the city and finding the guys and killing everybody. And occasionally you go into a club and there's a goth band playing. And if you were a goth band in the 90s, you better have somebody wearing their underwear on the outside. Uh, was that My <laughs> Life with the Thrill Kill Cult that played at one point in the movie? I think it was. I believe it was. Yeah. <laughs> I believe it was. I'm telling you. It was, again, get this, at least pull up this soundtrack, even if you don't want to listen to it. It changed lives. It yeah. changed lives. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Draven just kind of goes on a rampage, and he's killing people, and he reconnects with Sarah, and he's fighting people with the steeples on churches. Like, it's just a fun fucking action movie. I think, again, I think it could have led to bigger things. I would have loved to have seen Brandon Lee do a lot more action in this movie, but also I would have loved to have seen him do a lot more action movies in general. But he was hot, and he was taken too soon for my 16-year-old mind as an adult. I feel more for his family and friends and loved ones. Yeah. But at the time, I was like, oh, I can't believe that this hot dude is dead. We barely knew ye. Yeah, barely knew ye. I mean, honestly, like, I again, like, a perfect theme for me to watch a movie that I'd never seen before, secretly hoping that you would have picked it, and you did. I set it up. It was all a master plan. We're mind-melding now. But honestly, like, to the point of the theme, this film, I I would say, like, just, you know, by the numbers, it feels like this movie, I mean, it has a reputation for being cursed, I think, more than my film at the end of the day. I mean, you know, my movie, it's cursed because there was a fire and, you know, some people, but, like, this whole... This whole legend with the with his dad and, you know, the game of death scene and all of the kind of, um, you know, the stuff about the family. I mean, that is like what 
you know, uh, people remember about it. And it was something yeah. that I think maybe spooked me out a little too much in 94, but I'm so glad I finally saw it because Brandon me Lee is too. like incredible and he's such a hottie, but also like funny and talented. And yes. he, he's like, body confidence and you're just like oh my god he would have been able to do he probably would, could have been john wick let's get serious as much as i love That's Keanu, let's get serious listen if brandon lee was alive he would be like 58 yeah <laughs> like he would be the same age as keanu reeves yeah for sure for sure he would have been the proto john wick and just tragedy all over the place but i'm glad we got a few movies from him and you know, again, it's just this, the spooky parallels between the actual plot of the film and his life, coupled with the spooky parallels to his father, yeah, just really threw this over the edge into cursed territory for a lot of people. So, well, Danielle, as always, it was such a like great episode to watch these two movies together. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I know it was kind of a dark theme, but honestly, like I loved chopping it up with you. It was it was so good. Me too. Okay, so if you would like to email us, we are at isawatyoudidpod at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on at isawpod on Instagram and Twitter. That's right. We also have merch. Go to the I Saw What You Did section of the Exactly Right Shop to find it. And our bonus episodes are just, they're just out all the time now. Oh like there's God. a new one on the third. <laughs> there's a new <laughs> bonus episode on the on the main feed on the third Thursday of every month. But then there's just always a new bonus episode up. <laughs> There's so many new bonus episodes. Like, I was like, I went to our feed and was like, holy fuck, like four episodes dropped. Yeah. Like, what the f- <laughs> like, I can't keep up. And then people are commenting on things and I'm like, what? Oh, we said that like two years ago. Oh, that must be another new bonus episode came up. I know. Somebody was like, I just watched MacGruber. And I was like, why would you? Oh, wait. <laughs> so there we go. There we go. Also, I don't know if you're feeling this, but I feel like um, prior to us releasing the bonus episodes to the main feed, I don't think a lot of people were listening to the bonus episodes. Because <laughs> I mean, everyone's like, wow. And I'm like, <laughs> you haven't been uh, listening to us for two years say that we have bonus episodes. So glad we did all those <laughs> where nobody was listening until now. For the three people who are listening, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> well, they're... There are treats. Hopefully, we don't say anything crazy in them. I'm always afraid that I'm going to drop a, a little nug. Because we had the, the security and safety of the paywall. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> I know. We, ne- we never considered. We thought anyone paying to listen to us will just love whatever we have to say. <laughs> and now it's just out there for the masses. And we're like, uh, <laughs> hope you like it. Here we go. Oh, uh, but that, there's that so many of those. <laughs> yeah, there's just like a new bonus. I cannot keep up with how fast the new bonuses are coming out or the old bonuses are coming out. So yeah, yeah. just follow follow us on the podcast <laughs> device of your choice. That's right. And you'll get a million bonus episodes a week. Yeah. Um, but next week, I cannot tell you how excited I am for next week's theme. Ooh, Pew, 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 pew. Okay. Um, our movies for next week. Are you ready for this shit? Oh, yeah. You're going to have to watch The Elephant Man from 1980 and Nightmare Alley from 1947. 
Damn. And this is a Millie theme. And listen, I know you always say I don't come up with good themes. But when you come up with a theme, it is a banger. (laughs) It's like you save it all up and then you're like, what about this? And I'm like, that is perfection. Well, yeah. I mean, I'd love to toot my own horn on this. It is a quote from a song, but it is the best quote I could think of. So I did think of the quote. I pulled, you you did. Know, somebody just said it before me, but I thought of it. And now it's the name of an episode and I'm obsessed with this. Well, until next week. Danielle, as always, a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. I love it. I'm psyched. <laughs> See ya. This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced by Casey O'Brien. Mixed by Edson Choi. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogle. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.